personally experienced salvation? And why would they flee from the message that had saved them? And then he begins into chapter 3, and it actually goes on for all of, all of 3 and 4, and he talks about their history, their Jewish history. So let me give you an overview of what we're going to talk about today. Paul addresses the Judaizers' objections that are likely to come up. He said, now you'll bring up Moses, of course. I've already dealt with Abraham, but now you're going to bring up Moses. Well, Moses came after Abraham. And so maybe the experience of Moses and the bringing of the ceremonial law, maybe that undid some of what had been done through Abraham. So he references four verses, four Old Testament references. The first is Deuteronomy 27, 26, in which he cites that all who fail to keep the law are cursed. Then he cites Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Then he cites Leviticus 18.5, in which he shows that law and faith are unrelated to one another. Right in their very own book of Leviticus, the law and faith are unrelated. And then Deuteronomy 21.23, Jesus became a curse for us via the cross, being hung out on that tree as a corpse. So let's get into the text. I just wanted to give you that as an overview. He's great at quoting Old Testament scripture to prove his points, and he's just done it with four verses. You don't have to introduce the gospel to people just with the New Testament. It was all in the Old Testament. As they say, what is it? Uh, in the New Testament revealed what the Old Testament concealed. Verse 10. Let's read this. Verse 10, this is not an easy portion of text to read and just Pick it up easily, honestly. 10 to 14 is kind of dense, and so we really have to meditate on it. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. I want you to listen to this sentence that I read. I'll read it a few times. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He proves a point. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law, for it is as it is written. So he's making a point, and then he's bolstering it with a proof text. But the point and the proof text aren't exactly saying the same thing if you notice it. Listen again. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. He says, cursed are you. If you are not doing the law, that's the quote. But his text was, cursed are you for being of the law. Isn't it interesting? He's making an inference in this simple statement that you might not pick up if you don't pause to think about it. You just assume he proved his point. Well, no, look at the text. It doesn't seem clearly that he proved his point if you're reading it carefully. So you have to really get at what he's saying. What is Paul saying by making the statement? For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the law to do them. So he is accusing them of not doing the law. These very people that are holding to the law and saying that they're law keepers. He's accusing them of law breaking. Every one of them. And he's saying that it's so obvious that I'm not even going to go into any detail. He presupposes that they should understand that they're lawbreakers. This is where it gets really interesting. Now, Martin Luther said this. He points this out very clearly. 
These two statements, one by Paul and the other by Moses, appear to conflict. Paul declares, whoever shall do the works of the law is accursed. Moses declares, whoever shall not do the works of the law is accursed. So the question is, is there a conflict here? First, you have to understand what Paul said in his statement that he proved with his reference. He said, for as many as are of the works of the law. So the question is, what does he mean by being of the works of the law? Who is he talking to, and how would they perceive that phrase, of the works of the law? These people that are of the works of the law are those that are seeking their security, their safety in their law-keeping. And there is no safety there. Paul tells them, there is no safety in there because you're a lawbreaker. You're all lawbreakers. You've all failed to keep the law. Nearly all pagan religions rely upon works righteousness. Uh, my family bought me a set of uh, missionary uh, books, wonderful books, and they bought them for me on Father's Day, but I hadn't really cracked them yet. I, I actually even just unsealed them uh, before we went on vacation to Florida a few weeks ago. And so I was there sorting through all my books, trying to decide what to bring. I had a stack at one point of like a dozen. And so I picked two books to bring. And there were, well, I picked more, but I read two of the missionary books on my trip. But they were both what Pastor Kaiser has recommended in, in years past, and actually once was just a few months ago. He guilted us all for not having read Peace Child. And uh, I thought, yeah, all these years, he told me years and years ago, read it, but I never did. And so I read it. I read both books by Don Richardson, actually, Peace Child and Lords of the Earth. Both are written about, one is written about his experience in New Guinea with the Sawi tribes, and another is written by the experience of a man named Stanley Dale with people who were maybe 50 miles away by error, but through impenetrable mountain ranges uh, to the east. And that was his experience with another tribe. I think it was called the Yali tribe. But uh, for being so close to one another in geography, they were worlds apart in terms of how they lived their lives. Now, they were both Stone Age tribes, and all those tribes are Stone Age tribes. And so they really have no or had no modern uh, aspects of their life at all. They were all entirely dependent on living, eking out their existence by what grew on their mountains and how they lived. But the men ruled, the men ruled with an iron fist in both cultures. And women uh, often died for just the simplest of, of breaking of their, of their laws. But they had these religious priests that would just, uh, so to speak, read the tea leaves. Every time something would come up where they have a storm that they don't want, what has somebody done now? How, what have we done to offend this God now? And then they just jumped to some conclusion. And next thing you know, someone's getting tossed in the river. And uh, it's just a sad reality. These people lived. The suicide rate amongst the people that Stanley Dale worked with, the suicide rate among women was 10 times more than the men. Because men at least had sanctuary. They had these holy places that if they were under the gun from another enemy tribe, they could be standing in that holy place. They would escort them to their home village. I mean, it's just they respected these demons so much that you could go cling to that holy place and then your, your, your avowed enemy who would have killed you and eaten you just if you were six feet over there will take you and escort you to your home village. Women, no sanctuary, nothing whatsoever. 
But that's works righteousness. These people think that they have to appease these gods through some sacrifice. And anytime something happens to where it doesn't fit into their way of viewing things, the priests just make something up. They mean well, honestly, I believe. It's not like they're just oppressing their people. They truly do believe in this stuff. And they're trying to think, what have I done? What have we done? What has somebody done? And then they'll find some scapegoat that gets snitched on, and then they kill them, thinking that this will appease the God. But that is works of the law. We live in a Western culture, and so we don't practice that type of works righteousness. But we have our own. All cults pretty much believe in works righteousness. If, you're, if, if you were or you know Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Seventh-day Adventists, it tends to all revolve around what you do and don't do. And yet, in, even in the Orthodox Christian Church, we fall into this trap. We think, what have I done now to warrant this? Now, it's true that God may rebuke us for our sins, but you know that you are always safe in God's hand as a believer. You are not going to fall from God's grace, fall into hell. That's what these people fear. So we're not talking about a rebuke from a holy, loving God. We're talking about falling into hell based on what you've done wrong today. You shouldn't think like that. That's not the way our God works with us. And we'll go on to talk about this in more detail. Now, there's another phrase here in verse 10. It says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. We know what that curse is. That curse is death. That curse is separation from God. All of humanity was and remains under that curse. Let me read just a few verses ahead in Galatians uh, 3.22. The scripture has confined all under sin. The scripture has confined all under sin. Now, Paul obviously is referring to the Old Testament. So in what way did the Old Testament confine all under sin? It's in many places, but I'll give you two references. And actually, I'll give you two experiences too. So the first reference is Psalm 14, starting at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And then Daniel 9, starting at verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, The curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Now, these are two very clear scriptures that speak of all being under the curse, the curse of death, the curse of separation from God. And there are also two very obvious experiences. One was Moses. Moses sinned. He struck the rock as opposed to speaking to the rock. In his anger, in his frustration, he did this and he sinned, and God wouldn't let him enter the promised land. Abraham, as I mentioned earlier, was an idolater. When, you, when the word says you're to do the law, does that mean that you're to do the law from, the time, from some time forward, from the time that you reach the age of accountability, so to speak? What age is that? What's the quote? What's the reference you can give me for what that age is? Is it 13, 11, 9, 3? 
I don't know. I don't have a verse for that. I don't believe there is an age of accountability. We're accountable to God for our sin right from the womb. We're accountable to God for being a fallen human within the womb. So the, the age of accountability is zero. The age of accountability started at conception. That's the age. It's 0.0001 seconds. Now, the Jews perish with the law. That's what Paul is saying. You Jews who hang on to that law as if it's your salvation, as if it's your life uh, preserver out in the middle of the ocean, you cling to that. You're perishing with it. You will not be saved. Yes, you have that piece of flotsam that you can hang to, but it will not save you. And you Gentiles who do not have anything, who do not have law, who make things up, you are not saved. You cannot cling to anything. So you're in the ocean with this little light law life preserver, or you're in the ocean with nothing, but either way you're in the ocean, and you're going to die unless you're saved by someone who's much, much more powerful than you and in a much, much better situation. In Romans 2, Galatians and Romans are really, in a sense, the same book. Uh, you have Galatians as being kind of like a tiny Romans that was uh, written to this people. And then you have Romans that was written a few years later where Paul really bolstered pretty much every one of his arguments. And so when you see Galatians, you can see almost parallel texts in Romans. It's really beautiful to, to kind of orchestrate the two. So in Romans 2 verse 11, Paul writes this, There is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. And what we and what Jews tended to believe is that doing your best was what was expected of you and what was acceptable to God. And that's not true. We made that up. We made that part up. It's not acceptable to God. Doing your best means nothing in terms of your salvation. Absolutely nothing. Like, like the Bible says, they're just filthy rags. They're menstrual rags. All of that, all of what we do that, it, that we consider good, it's nothing to God. It's offensive to God that you would come to him with them. Look what I have done. Let me into heaven. Get away from me. What are you carrying those for and asking to get into heaven for my holy heaven? And so God rejects all of this, and yet he does provide the plan. To show you how impossible this is, let me give you an illustration. Who all here is college educated? It, lots of people, right? Lots of people have at least 10 to 10 classes. And if you're not, if you haven't got a degree, at least you've gone to school. Everybody's gone to school. Well, we've all then had classes. We've all gone to courses that have tested our diligence in studying. Imagine the hardest courses ever. Imagine you've been accepted into the most difficult school in this country. It makes Yale and Harvard look like preschools. And you're in it. You're going. In order to graduate, you have to get a GPA of 4.0. And that doesn't mean that it was averaged up or rounded up. That means if you get 99.9% .9 on any, even one homework assignment or test, you will not get a degree from this school because they are so rigid. They have such high standards. Not only do you have to do this, you have to attend all your classes, you have to be there, look sharp, and they have a demerit system. 
and they will not let anybody graduate that has any demerits. They offer no extra credit so that you can get extra stuff in order to improve your GPA, and they offer no means by which you can remove a demerit on your account once it's been added. You get demerits for things like not sitting up erect in class, not showing up at class on time, having lint on your, on your outfit. You get demerits for anything that the teachers want to give demerits for. And by the way, you begin your school classes there with one demerit because they gave you a demerit because your parents failed at this university many years ago when they attended. <laughs> so why go to that university? Now what they tell everybody, all these prospective students, we will give you an honorary degree that is the equivalent of the degree that you would have earned by taking these 34 classes and attending all of these classes and getting a GPA of 4.0 and not getting into demerits. You just need to admit that you are unworthy of having it, and you get it. That's grace. So see, that's the difference. We think we can achieve something with God through works. And it, we're just, you know, cobbling together little pebbles of sand to reach up to the moon. It's just silly that we do these things. But we convince ourselves of this because we don't have the humility to accept the obvious, that we can't succeed. Now, you can learn in this school if you go to it, though, can't you? You can get a better grade than your buddy next to you. You can be there when you see him get a demerit. He's such a loser. <laughs> By comparison, then, I'm such a winner, right? So that's how we think. It's just so natural to our fallen estates. We think like that. We know it. And God wants you to stop it. He wants me to stop it. That's not the way he has his children think. So now the question is, what does God require us to do? What does he require of us? Isn't that the question that really we all ask ourselves? Why am I here? What am I to do? It's an important question, and we really must pursue an answer. And the answer is this, relative to salvation... Just give up your efforts at earning it. You can't earn it. It's impossible. And so that's fairly straightforward. And you have the Bible to back you up. When you look at the story of Adam and Eve and you see that they were saved by God, I believe they were saved. They weren't saved on their own merits. They weren't saved because they cobbled up their clothing out of fig leaves. No, it was God that slew that animal. God that gave them the clothing to cover over those naked bodies, those sinful, shameful bodies. And ever after that, it was Abel's sacrifice, his offering of an animal that was accepted to God. When Noah got off the ark, the first thing he did was built an altar and sacrificed animals. And that was accepted by God. Not as earning his righteousness, but just reflecting his unworthiness. We reflect our unworthiness by going to God and admitting our need of him. The moral law existed in the garden. It became the Ten Commandments later. Yes, it was, it was uh, symbolized by that. But the moral law was right there. Adam and Eve broke the moral law. That's what brought the curse upon us. The ceremonial law, you can see, began to enter in immediately. God introduced it himself. He wanted Abel to bring the animal sacrifices to him. He wanted Noah to build that altar and sacrifice those animals. 
And yet, what happened is the moral law got obscured. Our failure to keep it got obscured by the ceremonial law, which supposedly we could keep. We can do that. We can kill animals. You know, that's, that's easy. Even my son, I think, if his life depended on it, could kill an animal, although, although I, I, I find it hard to fathom. <laughs> but we could all do that if our lives depended on it, if the lives of our loved ones depended on it. And that's what, that's what these Stone Age tribes in New Guinea believe with all their heart. They believe their very existence depends on their tossing their children into the river from time to time. And so they were saved from that by the gospel when it came. Just a beautiful illustration of how Christianity transforms cultures to make them better. It doesn't just save people and ready them for heaven. No, it transforms their earthly culture to get it directed towards God and pleasing God. The just shall live by faith. That's what this reference is that I mentioned, Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans 3.17, Hebrews 10.38, and here in Galatians 3.11. And each time it seems from the context that a different word in the sentence is emphasized. The just shall live by faith. That's what Paul is emphasizing in Romans. The just shall live by faith. And he's contrasting that with living by what you see, by living in this world and not having faith in God. Trusting in your works, trusting in what you see and can rely upon. Hebrews 10.38, the just shall live by faith. There the writer is speaking of working. he's, He's encouraging people to do good works. The just shall live by faith. So you're to live out your life faithfully serving God, faithfully serving the church, faithfully reaching out to the lost. And then here in Galatians 3.11, the just shall live by faith. He's emphasizing that you must be righteous. The just shall live by faith. You must live by faith in order to be just. There is no other way. You can't live by works to be just. The works spin out of your faith. They're just an after effect of your faith. They have nothing to do with you being righteous or unrighteous. Isn't that odd? I mean, I find it odd because when we look around in our society, we're always judging people as being righteous or unrighteous. And from an earthly perspective, I think that's okay, but you can't get it mixed up with God's standard. We can't confuse our earthly standards of righteousness with God's standards of righteousness. His is so much more refined. It's like we're okay with 98% silver or something. But for God, it's absolutely pure and no impurities whatsoever. So let's just not get confused on that. Now, I want to show you in two different ways heroes of the faith that are just all throughout Scripture. Hebrews 11 is obviously the one that we go to first. It's the hall of faith, the hall of fame of faith. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away because he pleased God. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So these are examples referencing back to the Old Testament. Now here are some that lived right there and Jesus spoke to right in the Gospels. Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13, the centurion. He sought Jesus out in Capernaum to heal his servant. And it's an example of selflessness. This centurion didn't come to Jesus for himself. 
he came for a servant of his that is in his household. And Jesus said, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So the question I have for you, do you believe this to be saving faith? Jesus said, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. In the context, look at the context. You can see what Jesus says. I believe this was saving faith, this centurion was exercising. In Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, the woman of Tyre sought him. This is a Gentile. It, she was there to plead for her daughter. And Jesus said, O woman, great is your faith. And in the context, it shows that she came and worshipped him. And again, it appears that this was saving faith. They were evidencing. In other words, faith has always been the way in which people are saved and made righteous casting aside their own worthiness, quote-unquote, and relying instead upon God. And it's what we've talked about in the introduction this morning, focusing upon Christ's, what he has attained, not what we have failed to attain in the week past. Otherwise, no one would come to church, right? I mean, it would be too humbling. If we were always to come here and focus on ourselves, focus on our failures, our attendance would dwindle very quickly. We must focus on God. We must focus on Christ. Two more. In Luke 7, there is the prostitute who comes and washes Jesus' feet, washes Jesus' feet. And, and uh, Simon thinks in his heart, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow this. And immediately, Jesus knows that he has said this in his heart, and he challenges him on it. I came in here and you didn't wash my feet, but this woman has not ceased from washing my feet with her tears. And he says very clearly, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, it's faith. It's simple faith. We want to judge everyone by their actions. And there are times in which it's appropriate for us to judge people by their actions. Because Jesus himself said that the tree that is alive, that is uh, showing faith, will bear fruit. And so, yes, we are to judge people by their, act their actions. But it's really not possible for us to necessarily judge people's salvation on their actions because sometimes our actions are so inconsistent with our true beliefs, with our true standing before God. So this whole sermon is really about contrasting faith and works. What are they appropriate for? How can we discriminate between them? How can we encourage the works while not encouraging people to think that their standing before God is relying upon their works? That's why we can come to worship and rejoice and unburden ourselves of the sins of the past week because they mean nothing in our relationship with God in the here and now. God has taken them upon Christ. He has covered over these sins. Yes, he wants you to grow in holiness. Yes, he wants you to serve him faithfully. But he doesn't want you to get so bollocked up that every day you're just consumed with, with uh, this remorse and this self-pity over your sins. No, he wants you focusing on Christ's righteousness and allowing him to work that righteousness through you. Jesus also became a curse for us, having redeemed us from the curse. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? The Jews of this day knew exactly what this meant. In war, high-profile prisoners were redeemed for money, for a ransom. If there was a battle and you had some, high, some uh, privileged citizens from one city get taken by the other city, hey, you want them back, you'll have to pay. And so you pay money 
to get those people back because they're in positions of power and influence and authority. They're very important people. They're nobles or something. And so that was a means by which you could rescue these people and get them back to your city. And we know that people are kind of of different values in our society in terms of what they can bring to society. There are people that can do certain things. You know, God himself gave gifts in the Old Testament. It speaks of giving gifts of music, gifts of metalworking, things like that. So we know that people's gifts vary. But when you look at what Jesus did in redeeming us, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that not many wealthy, not many mighty, not many wise or noble are the saved. We're the saved. We're like normal people, average people. If we were in the, one of those old cities, very few of us probably would have ever been ransomed, would have been sold into slavery or executed. That's the nature of this. And yet that's how kind God is in rescuing those that really, for, in the world's eyes, are unworthy of rescue. So that shows a difference in that culture and God's economy as to the worthiness of the recipient of the, of the being redeemed. You had to be worthy in that society. And yet also, what was paid? How much money was paid to get those people? Well, it had to be something reasonable, right? You can't give all your city's wealth to get that one person back, or else you've now made yourself bankrupt. And so there is some level. But what is the price that Christ paid in order to redeem us normal people who would have been left for slavery or dead? His own life. So who in these cities would have exchanged themselves with this other person? Very few. Like Jesus said, you know, you don't lay down your lives. You, maybe you'll lay down your life for a friend. So that's what redemption is. That's what these people understood it to be, and that's what it is. He became a curse for us through that redemption process. It is called the glorious exchange by Luther. When we hear that Christ was made a curse for us, let us believe it with joy and assurance. By faith, Christ changes places with us. He gets our sins, we get his holiness. Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. And here is the capstone of this whole text, verses 10 to 14. And it says this in verse 14. That... So this is why the exchange took place, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I talked earlier about Abraham really being the, the Gentile. He was the Gentile that was made a Jew. So he was really a picture of all who are blessed by God in this way, all who are chosen from obscurity, all who are chosen from idolatry, by God, and transformed into his image, saved to serve him with the rest of your life on this earth and to be with him forever in heaven. That is the blessing of Abraham. And that is a blessing that the saved of this world experience now. Eternal life begins now, the moment that you are made right with God, your eternal life began. You're not waiting for it to begin. It began. And so that's why we serve God with our works. We only begin what will continue for us for eternity. Yes, we'll have this interlude where we leave this body and we receive this other glorious body, but that doesn't affect our eternal life. Our eternal life goes on. It began the moment we were saved by God. 
So now, in closing, let me say that those that keep the law and those that reject the law are cursed. Both the overtly religious that lack faith in our world are lost. And the out-and-out atheists, obviously, are lost. We are damned if we do and damned if we don't in this regard. We are damned, all of us. So the only path to God is the path of faith, the path through Christ, the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This path is entirely unrelated to our works. You don't get on that path through your good works. You don't stay on that path through your good works. Totally unrelated. It is based instead upon our great need of God and God's kind provision in giving himself to satisfy that need. For those that trust him, Christ takes damnation upon himself. He becomes a curse for us as only he could. And he then blesses us in this world and in the world to come. We do not deserve this. None of us do. But we can appreciate it. We can thank God for it. We can go forward in good works, thanking him for who we are, for what he has done, for what he has made us to be. Not as a, and Jesus himself said this, not as a slave. He has made us his children. He has adopted us into his family. And so we don't do it as a, as a, uh, as a slave, although we are also called bondservants, but we do it as children out of love, out of fealty. We choose to do good works, not to save ourselves, but because we serve a good God, and he is training us up to be his good children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your love, your unmerited grace in reaching out to us, uh, rescuing us from our own attempts at good works and achieving righteousness through this means. We thank you, Father, for what you have made us to be. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and his work on this earth, for Christ and his sacrifice. We know that the world does not understand or accept this, and yet we do, Lord. We thank you for it. We thank you for what you have done, and we want our lives to mean something in your kingdom. So we ask you to guide us, lead us, have your Holy Spirit to fill us with a desire to please you above all else. We ask you to be with us now and work in us through Christ. In his name we pray, amen.